you know, everyone makes mistakes. It's just a part of life. You know, you've been able to forgive other people in your life. It's time you forgive yourself. It's time you let go of those things that you wished you'd done differently or the things you didn't do or you did that you regret or the things that you didn't do that you wished you had. And I'll go through a long part of getting them to let go of, uh, of something they're dragging behind them. Many people are, it's almost like they have all these ropes over their shoulder and they're dragging all these barrels and buckets of crap behind them from their past. And all that sort of thinking is what stops them and slows them down. I mean, if you want to make an artist really creative, bulk erase their mind to where they remember nothing. And then the next morning they start to paint again fresh and they don't have the preconceived notions that they can't. You you forget the business I came out of. Oh, yeah, that's right. right. (laughs) Yeah. Well, give us a clear definition of the hypnotherapy or what is it exactly? And describe how the hypnotherapy session looks like if I come for a session uh, describe uh, the zone where the magic happens? First off, you have to talk about hypnosis itself. I mean, hypnosis is just um, focused attention. We fall into it naturally all the time in lighter states, losing track of you know driving on an interstate for a few minutes or losing track of time in a good book or a good movie. Those are lighter forms of hypnosis. It's just a, um, a situation of increased focus. And a hypnotherapist then basically, you know, lead you to focus on them and to imagine the things and see the things that they're imagining. Uh, I always meet with someone before I do a session, uh, require it. It's not like going to the doctor to get a shot. I mean, I have to kind of customize what I'm doing to that person. Um, and there's a lot of different ways to get someone into hypnosis. Anxious people will require longer. People who are quite calm, won't take nearly as long. Um, And it varies as to how hypnotizable people are. So there is no standard way. It's sometimes why doing this is so taxing. (laughs) Okay. So what's the zone where it actually happens? Like, how do you know that the person um, is hypnotized enough? (laughs) Well, they, they will mostly look like they're asleep. Because the conscious mind essentially is, it's floated off. The uh, body is extremely relaxed, which is, a, it's why it's called a sleep-like state. And I can tell by the expressions of a person's face and such. And then things, when I begin to ask them to imagine things, to watch the eye movement back and forth as they begin to see it in their mind and expressions on their face and such. Uh, it's hard to describe. Uh, it's experience is what teaches how to notice it in someone. There's a slackness in the muscles. Sometimes people will have an arm on their lap and you'll see it just kind of fall over by their side. Um, There are so many ways to tell. I know what it is because, you know, I've been to a few of your sessions, but can you describe for uh, the viewers what it is? Like, say, you know, what the person does when he comes to your office? Well, I have to step back a moment from that. And what we're trying to do more than anything is get away from the conscious mind. Because for most people, the conscious mind is the problem. Um, it's good at many things. It's how we figure things out. It's you know, how we keep ourselves safe. It's how we learn. But the conscious mind is a liar. It's a bully. It's the, 
It's the ego. The conscious mind will tell most people the most awful things about them, more so than they would allow anyone else to tell them. But because their conscious mind tells them that, um, then they begin to believe it, even negative things about them. So in hypnosis, we're kind of stepping around behind um, the conscious mind. And a person won't do anything that they don't want to do. So that's why I meet with them ahead of time. What is it you want to accomplish? And then while in hypnosis, I make suggestions that match up with what they, what they want to accomplish. And if it, if they find it good and beneficial, then their subconscious mind will accept it and begin to put it into practice. So it's, it's, it's not a simple process. Is it possible to implant a false memory during the hypnosis session? Yes, it is. And, you know, in, when I was uh, getting my education, my formal education for hypnosis, that's something that they, um, you know, strongly teach us not to do. There's a, um, when you, it's especially, there's regression work where you, a lot of times there are issues back in a person's life, adult life, but quite often childhood. And when you take someone back to that and they're seeing that again, all you can do is ask questions. You can't say something like, well, he did that, didn't he? You can't do that because it's a dreamlike state and it could imprint and, and make someone think that they actually experienced something that they didn't. So when someone's back there in, in a regression state, all I do is say things like, are you indoors? Are you outdoors? Is it daytime or nighttime? Is it winter, spring, summer, or fall? Is it a sunny day or is it a cloudy day? Are you older than 10 or younger than 10? And I just listen to their questions. And by them answering, it, it um, flushes in the memory out in detail for the person. And then I begin to ask just what's going on? What are you experiencing? And they begin to tell me. And it's amazing how often we find the root of something a person suffered with you know, their entire life. Um, we find the reason why, whether it's a lady at 60 years old who'd never driven a car um, to why a, a gentleman couldn't walk through a room without snacking. I mean, they're all rooted back in those are usually more often than not rooted in childhood. Not always, but a lot of emotional issues are. Let's go back a little bit. Like you come from the entertainment industry and um, tell me what you did uh, before becoming a hypnotherapist and uh, what made you change your Uh, career, what was the catalyst uh, for you to turn to hypnotherapy? Well, my, the catalyst actually predates me being in broadcasting, but it was delayed. Um, at band camp, I was a trumpet player as a child. At 14 years old, I hypnotized another trumpet player at band camp with some others watching. I bought a book and wasn't even sure if it worked, but I anesthetized his hand, numbed his hand, had him hold it out, held a lighter under his hand, and he didn't move it. I actually, as a boy, I didn't know better, but I actually burned his hand pretty bad, but he said it never hurt. Well, I, I started at 14 years old knowing this worked, that hypnosis was real, but it was not a time, this was the 60s, it's not a good time to, you know, make that a career, so um I ended up in the broadcasting business. I was on the air for a number of years, wanted to be in management, was by the time I was in my mid-20s and advanced in management. I spent most of my career as a vice president general manager of clusters of radio stations. Um, that business has changed. I got older. I got tired of it. Um, and so I retired early. 
thinking I was going to do extended travel. But once my mind got still and I didn't have to deal with the corporate world every day, this voice inside kept telling me, you need to do that hypnotherapy thing. You've wanted to do it your whole life. You need to have the nerve. Now, if you fall on your face, it doesn't matter. So I did it. Um, just jumped in when it took all the advanced studies that I could learned as much came back to my hometown, um, thought that, Oh, I'd start a part-time practice and, you know, maybe I'd get three or four people a week. Um, within a year and a half, I was seeing 20 a week and I work pretty much full time now. Well, let me also throw in here part of my own, I had a, had a difficult childhood. And so part of what led me to this was my own recovery starting about 25 years ago from that. As I searched out, you know, everything from self-hypnotism to Buddhism to the ancient philosophers to more modern um, teachings. It, so there's there, I guess there's quite a bit behind it, too. It was uh, I've found in my recovery work that people who have lived their own recovery are the best able to help. And that's what I believe about me. I mean, I've, I've used a lot of things to get me to here. And I think that makes me well-versed to be able to help others. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you go to, to special school to, um, to learn the techniques? How did you? Yes, I went to uh, Hypnosis Training Institute in Cordy Madeira, California. It's in the Bay Area, just six miles over the Golden Gate Bridge. And I took not only, I didn't stop at hypnotherapist, I took the advanced things so I could uh, end up with certifications as a clinical hypnotherapist, a regression specialist, and a master hypnotist. Mm -hmm. And um, now you work in Tulsa. Yes. I've had a practice for seven and a half years. Okay. Very cool. Well, as humans, we all have our unique uh, patterns of behavior. Let's discuss that. Let's discuss uh, rules of the mind. Um, You can explain what it is. And uh, maybe tell us why it's so difficult to change our behavior. I'll have to go back a little further to answer the question, but I'll make a broad answer up front. We behave based on neural pathways that we've created in our brain over time. Mm -hmm. Simple as that. They're like wagon ruts. Uh, Everything from, you know, the which leg you put in your pants first to how you brush your teeth. They're all, they've been, we've created neural pathways over time that that is our practice. So to begin to change and be different, you have to create new neural pathways and begin to kind of fill those old ones back in. About 60% of who we are was formed by the time we were out of puberty. There, Erickson's stages, uh, theory of stages of development for human beings taught by, it's taught in nursing and psychology and medicine, there are nine stages of development for a human being. And we're through five of them by the time we're 12, 13, 14 years old. So we are essentially shaped, introverted, extroverted, confidence, lack of confidence, all those things were established. And it's not just the people you were around and your parents, much of it is observations. Children are incredibly good observers, but they're horrible interpreters. So they take things at five years old and they say, well, this plus this must equal that. And they adopt that belief and carry it into their adult life, digging a really deep neural pathway the whole time they're doing it. Can it change? Yes. Does it take effort? Very definitely it does because that trench has been, you know, dug very deep. Um, I can't recite them from memory, but I'll, I'll have it in front of me that the eight stages, if you live to be old, okay. 
the first eight are, have to do with trust and mistrust. That's established by the time you're a year and a half old, whether you feel independent or you feel shameful by three, whether you have purpose, whether you feel initiative or guilt, that's three to five. Industry and inferiority, it's about inferiority, uh, competency, that's five to 12. And then I, your identity, your role in life is established between 12 and 18. And then there's, there, so the majority of who we are was shaped by that. So before you get into, you know, the way the mind works, you have to first, that's why I have to meet with someone. I need to know what happened. I need to know what their life has been like. Mm-hmm. I ask a ton of questions, everything from um, how well do you sleep to what was your childhood like to uh, a whole kind, because sometimes people won't necessarily present what the real issue really is. Mm-hmm. Basically, it all um, goes back to our childhoods if we want to fix something. But first well, of all, we need to be aware of what to fix. Well, uh, they don't, don't have to be aware of what. They have to know what the symptom is. I mean, it, it's, not, it's not completely. About 60%. I mean, about 40% we add in our adult life. Mm-hmm. So we're adding a lot as we go on. I mean, I work with people sometime that had trauma at 25 years old. Their childhood was just fine. So, mm-hmm. and there was a you know new way of thinking that was was created then. Mm-hmm. Um, so why is it uh, so difficult to change our behavior? Well, it's, I'll give you a, a kind of a graphic example. Are you right-handed or left-handed? Right-handed. Okay, learn to write with your left. How difficult is that? Well, I, I actually was left-handed, but then I learned. Okay, <laughs> but did that take effort? Did yes, take, it did. There's, that's my point, is change takes effort. Now, hypnotherapy allows a person, it's not a shortcut, but if it's something that they really want to accomplish, it allows them to. I'll give you a very simple um, um, a case of someone who came to me. We, she was back for her second appointment last week. She came to quit smoking. Mm-hmm. And I don't work with a ton of that, but I two or three a week. And she also wanted to quit uh, drinking Dr. Pepper. She was very motivated. So we did her first session. She comes back for her second. And she had not smoked a cigarette. And she had not had a Dr. Pepper. She said she lit one twice and got sick at her stomach and got nauseous. And then she just the smell of a Dr. Pepper made her not feel well. Well, I made those suggestions when she was in hypnosis. I said that if she smoked, it would make her nauseous. And I think I made some reference to uh, Dr. Pepper smelling something like six day year old road or six day old roadkill laying in the road in the sun in July. So it made her sick. But why did that work? She wanted to quit. She accepted the the suggestions in hypnosis. It Mm -hmm. matched what she wanted to accomplish. Mm -hmm. So does that help? See, she, she was highly motivated. You get other people, they'll say, oh, creativity. You know, I'm not feeling very creative. You know, where's my creative juices? Well, they've gotten so far in front of themselves, they're blocking it. They're thinking it. What you, if you think you're not creative, I guarantee you, you won't be. If you think you're in a period where you're not going to be a prolific creator, you won't be. You create your own reality. What we think creates what unfolds in front of us. So if you want to change your life, you end up changing your thinking, both consciously and, and subconsciously. You know, someone who says, um, I need more money. I want more money. Well, all that's going to give you is the need and want of money. If you began to change your thinking to something like the money I need is on the way, 
then you've completely changed the way things are being processed in your brain. You're beginning to create a new pathway. You know, it's why people who expect bad things to happen usually find them. They attract them. It's just the way it works. And it's not some, you know, cosmic law of the universe necessarily, although I believe there's something to that. A lot of it is just what we do, the way we think. You know, whether you think you can or you can't, you're right. How do you help people to change their thinking? Try to find out where the root is. Um, You know, sometimes I'll find, I'll work with someone, we're going to go back to childhood again, um, who had a good childhood, you know, well-supported, well-educated, nice household, um, parents, there was a lot of love in the household, but one or both the parents pushed really hard, Mm -hmm. too hard. And, you know, they would say things like, oh, you got a bee, that bee's beneath you. We don't have bees in this house. Or, um, you know, that athletic event, uh, you got second. There are no second place people in this house. Well, enough of that over time will cause the person to think they can never measure up. And they'll carry that into their adult life. And they will cause it to happen for themselves. They won't measure up because they don't think they can. Mm-hmm. I've seen this. I've helped people reverse that many times and get them on the right track. I'll give you a very simple thing that works. And this actually goes back to my recovery, but I use it in my practice a lot. They're called positive affirmations. It's a very simple, we create two or three very simple statements, things like every day I'm feeling more confident or day by day, I'm more in control of my emotions. And then I ask them to speak them aloud three times, three times a day for 30 to 45 days. That's a minute. It takes a minute to do that each day. It will be life-changing if a person does it. Most people, many people don't stay with it. They're good for three days, five days, because they really don't want the change enough. Mm -hmm. But the people who do, like the lady who stopped Dr. Pepper and stopped smoking, they will do them and they'll change their life. Why is it important to say it out loud? Is it a, is it get out of the conscious mind? Get out of the, get okay. out of the conscious mind. It's the liar. It's the bully. It's the problem. Right. Now the subconscious mind is very susceptible to the spoken word. That's why hypnosis works. You got, you can mumble it, but it's got to be allowed. See to your subconscious, it doesn't really know the difference between what is reality and what isn't. So, what you speak, you kind of create the instruction or the blueprint for your, for your sub, for your subconscious. So if you're always, you know, acting and speaking like you lack confidence and you're not sure if you're talented and don't know if you can do anything, well, your subconscious just gives you all of that multiplied. But if you begin to say, I can, I will, I am, then things begin to happen, but it takes a while. People often give up too soon. Why is it not in reverse? Why can't we listen to our subconscious mind instead of our ego? Ego? It's all ego. And by ego, I don't mean full of yourself. I mean, ego mm-hmm. is about, you know, the, the, the self-beliefs we have about ourselves. Mm-hmm. And the conscious mind uses it to control. That's why it'll tell you, you know, you're awful, you're ugly, you're old, you can't do it. It'll do all of that so it can run you like a rat through a maze. It has control. It's really very weak. It's like most bullies. But as long as you give in to it, it's extremely strong. Well, give me uh, other examples what you actually changed in uh, people's behavior. Well, I get everything from I work with people with Tourette's, which is something that you can't stop. You can teach them to slow it way down. I work with 
eating, uh, weight management, which is often complicated because eating habits, uh, eating too much or not eating enough is almost always emotional based. And you have to go back and find out what that's all about. Work with a lot of people who um, don't have um, confidence and belief in themselves. Sometimes people are middle-aged and they're trying to see what what is ahead for them. Well, their subconscious can take their memories, their emotions, the wisdom for life, and kind of create a most probable outcome or a possible outcome in hypnosis so the person can um, can begin to see it. Um, fears and phobias. I mean, probably 40% of my practice is anxiety, fears, phobias, and stress. Those are learned behaviors. We didn't come into the world worried and anxious. We learned it. It's a reactive behavior to um, the way we grow up in our adult life. And whatever's learned can at least to a, a large extent be unlearned. So with hypnosis, we set about trying to unteach and undo some of the things that the conscious mind has done over time. If you enjoyed this video, uh, hit the subscribe button. How long does it take to actually see change? Motivation of the person is the single most important determining factor. I mean, I use smoking some because it's easy to explain. I mean, smoking's not very complicated. It's just a bad habit. Um, I can tell, I give them a list of things to do before their first appointment that are things like, you know, that brand you smoke, can't have it anymore. You smoke as much as you want, one pack at a time. Oh, you hold it in your right hand, hold it in your left. Oh, you smoke right after you get up or after a meal, wait 10 minutes. So what they're doing with each one of those is they're starting to take little pieces of control. And when they come back, uh, I had a retired postman, three-pack-a-day smoker, 68 years old. He was very motivated to quit. And when he came back for his appointment, I said, how did you do? He said, oh, I did them all. Really? I said, yeah, I've had a cigarette in two days. Good for you. Let's do hypnosis and let's finish it up. He didn't need a second appointment. He was done. Wow. He was highly motivated. Then I get other people, well, I think I kind of maybe want to quit. You know, I'm looking for a magic trick or some magic fairy dust. Well, it doesn't work. It, so the single determining factor about the effectiveness of hypnosis is the motivation of the person I'm working with. Okay. Because all it does is amplify, embellish, and, embellish and strengthen. Won't make you do anything you don't want to do. Okay. Touch that subject, but let's uh, talk about mental blocks and uh, self-doubt and creativity. How can you help unblock <laughs> mental blocks? The affirmations do. Part of it, you have, to, you have to be serious about it. I mean, that's the first thing. If you're, when people come to me, if they are literally looking for uh, you know, a movement of a magic wand and think they're just going to get fixed and they don't have to do any work, it doesn't work out very well. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't. So I'll go back to their motivation is the number one thing. Are they willing to follow the suggestions are they ready to that I make and even when we discuss they what they're doing is it's neural reprogramming you know the brain has something called neuroplasticity which all that means is it can change I mean there are many um, extreme cases of where someone's in an accident and they're told they'll never walk again and they look at the doctor and says just watch me and then five years later they're getting about I mean, in those cases, many of them have taught an entirely different part of the brain to take on the responsibility for movement that didn't mm -hmm. that the other part that originally had it was damaged. So if you can change at that level, you can certainly change thinking to see every thought or idea causes a reaction within the body and the mind. Every thought does. 
And part of it is when you began to think, you know, I'm, I've been fooling myself. I'm not very talented. Well, you have to start to head those things off. And you say, no, 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 wait a minute. I have proof that I am. You know, I've had other people tell me I am. So you need to, you have to stop and begin to counter your own BS. Begin to stand up to the things that that bully in your mind is telling you. And each time you do, you're, you're slightly adjusting your course, but you have to stay with it. That's why those positive affirmations work. That's why, you know, telling yourself different things when those negative thoughts come, come up, you don't have to suddenly wake up one day and be awesome and do it all the time. Why not? (laughs) You're back to a magic trick. Um, You know, anything worthwhile takes work. Um, I read once that if an airline pilot takes off from Los Angeles to fly to New York city on a given day, and he makes a three degree course change over the course of the flight, he'll end up in Washington, DC and not New York. It's the same with this. You just have to be consistent. And if you are consistent, at least some of the time, most of the time, you'll begin to change your course. You're back to creating, filling in old negative neural pathways and creating new positive uh, neural pathways. As far as I'm getting, um, a person who comes to your session needs to be motivated to change things around. Um, And then repeat uh, those affirmations? Well, I'm, um, I think of myself as like a workout coach at the gym. I mean, I can't do the exercises for you. I can't get you in shape, but I can show you, I can show you how I can lead you there. I can teach you how to do them yourself, but I can't make you do them. Mm-hmm. So it's much like that. I'm almost sort of a, a coach, you know, cause we end up in life. What we expect is what we end up realizing most of the time. You know, that's the, you know, one of the second laws of how we think, what is expected tends to be realized. So we bring it, you know, the, every thought or idea causes a physical reaction. What is expected tends to be realized and imagination is more important than knowledge. I mean, even Albert Einstein said that. that and why, why is it more important? That's where we expand what we know and, and what we see and what we can comprehend. Knowledge is sometimes its own blinder. We can know too much. I mean, there's, how common is it for someone to be an honor student, very well educated, but they're, uh, you know, they're delivering groceries or working at Walmart um, because they have the knowledge, but they don't have the imagination to put what they know into practice. Is there any other magic ingredient uh, that's necessary for a person to change? Well, it's not really. I mean, it's not, there's nothing magic. The two sides counter your negative thinking with something positive and then use the affirmation to actually add more positivity as you go. And that, and then of course, hypnosis is really makes all of that very, very powerful because I will have made suggestions like that to a person, you know, maybe someone who's made a lot of mistakes. I mean, in hypnosis, uh, I'll actually go through something that he, where I talk about, you know, everyone makes mistakes. It's just a part of life. You know, you've been able to forgive other people in your life. It's time you forgive yourself. It's time you let go of those things that you wished you'd done differently or the things you didn't do or you did that you regret or the things that you didn't do that you wished you had. And I'll go through a long part of getting them to let go of, uh, of something they're dragging behind them. Many people are, 
it's almost like they have all these ropes over their shoulder and they're dragging all these barrels and buckets of crap behind them from their past. And all that sort of thinking is what stops them and slows them down. I mean, if you want to make an artist really creative, bulk erase their mind to where they remember nothing. And then the next morning they start to paint again fresh and they don't have the preconceived notions that they can't. Mm-hmm. You know, as my grandfather said, it's not good English, but can't, never could do nothing. I heard that so many times when I was growing up. Horrible English, but it sure made an impression on me. Can't, never could do nothing. I mean, because once an idea has been accepted by the subconscious, it creates it as an absolute fact, even if it's not good for you. Mm-hmm. So that's why with hypnosis, we get to you know kind of sneak in and, and change it. And the longer you've held something as a fact, the more difficult it is to change. You know, a lot of people who have trauma in their childhoods grow up to think that they are broken, tainted, that there's something wrong with them. And it's amazing what removing that can begin to do for people or helping a person remove it, how that can begin to let them see the light again. Let's talk about that uh, a little bit. Like a person who experiences a tough uh, childhood or there is something that happens in childhood uh, affects, uh, you know, the, the person's life uh, forever and ever. Until they resolve it. Yes, it does. Um, how do you help that person see uh, the problem, first of all, and then, you know, change the thinking? Well, again, all I do is, is begin to teach the person how to do it for themselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes I'll get someone that they have blanks in their childhood, which almost always means trauma. And sometimes we have to, we don't have to go through what happened every step of it. We have to find the emotion that it's rooted to. Mm-hmm. Um, and so once we find that, then we know what's going on. Then we begin to work on undoing it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no simple answer. So is it possible to recover uh, lost memories during the session? Mm, yes. I mean, I've done that for you know, a little old lady who put her jewelry away and couldn't figure out where she put it. Turned out she hid it in a uh, pocket of a blazer, but she couldn't remember without the aid of hypnosis. I've had people who um, had something happen in their life and they wanted to remember more of the details. They had blocked it. And so mm-hmm. we're able to do that. Um, get people who have, you know, they have anxiety about exams and, you know, their brain suddenly they, when it's time to take the exam, it's like they've, for, they've forgotten mm-hmm. 90% of what they knew. Well, that's that, that's how I was. I, you know, whenever I had an exam, I basically lost everything in my in my head. And how the 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 way I trained myself in college is actually, um, I told myself that I knew everything and I studied, and that's how uh, I stopped, you know, blanking out. Yeah, well, that's it, the knowledge was there. Yeah. The anxiety blocked it. You you were focused on, you know, the anxiety or feeling like you couldn't and which created a block. Um, You know, there most psychologists, which I'm not, um, will tell you that if you really want to pass a test, don't cram the night before. Get a good night's rest and wake up fresh to the next day so you can remember what it is you've learned. That, you know, the college cramming really is not very effective at all. Mm-hmm. 
So do you think it's necessary to relive the past or relive the memory? Not necessarily. No, not for testing. You know, usually someone who's facing an exam, I had a lady not long ago, she um, empty nester, her kids were grown. She went back to school and became a nurse. She had failed her nursing boards twice. She'd get nervous because she had this idea, I'm old and it's more difficult for me. Mm-hmm. And got him passed. I've had policemen trying to advance, paramedics trying to take that next exam and move on, college kids who are facing huge exams, you know, the, the finals and such. And they, for the vast majority of them, do very, very well. And all I do is teach them in hypnosis to kind of drop themselves into a, kind of a groove or a zone mm-hmm. uh, using a post-hypnotic condition response, which kind of removes, they, they kind of sleepwalk almost through the, through the whole thing. Okay. And so they're able to not deal with all that anxiety. It's different though. I use different methods for different people. That's why the best, no matter how much I learned, the years I studied, no matter how much I learned formally in school, the people I work with on a day-to-day basis, that's the classroom where I continue to learn more and more and more Mm -hmm. and have been able to work with things successfully that I would not have been comfortable working with seven years ago or may not have been as successful because my clients teach me most. And I love new things I haven't dealt with before. It's a challenge. It it often takes... um a single event for a person to develop addictions. And uh, those addictions uh, could be uh, different. And mm-hmm. can, can you explain what the root cause of addictions? Well, addictions, is? any addiction, whether it's uh, food, alcohol, drugs, overwork, um, any addiction is a person trying to make themselves feel different or better. That's all it is, trying to feel different or better, because they don't like, if they get still and are just themselves, they don't like what they meet up with. So they're trying to alter their consciousness. Mm-hmm. And so difference. why doesn't it work? What? Why doesn't it work? Well, let's say uh, a person gets addicted to, you know, he becomes an alcoholic or a workaholic. Is it the only state when that person feels okay when he's drinking or when he works all the time? Well, it's an altered state. And they're, you know, people with addictions aren't comfortable being themselves. So they need to alter who they are to be able to feel okay about themselves and okay about what they're doing. You know, some of it, like workaholism, is purely just being in control of being out of control. Their life is a mess, but they stay so busy, they never have to deal with it. Where if they slowed down, they would have to deal with it, but they're trying to outrun it. You know, then there's numbing. You know, everything from uh, alcohol to drugs to sex can, can be used as a numbing mechanism to help a person feel better temporarily. But then it wears off and they need more. Then it wears off and they need more. So, and the addiction deepens. They create a neural pathway, that rut, that wagon rut I talked about earlier. The mm-hmm. longer a person's in an addiction, the more difficult it is to change it. Is it possible for a person to, you know, to become addiction-free? Well, I'll go back to smokers because when it's just easier to talk about and I work with it a lot more. 
But the number one thing is uh, anyone with an addiction has to realize if they want to quit, not ever, not once for the rest of their life. That's where it has to begin because once, once you become an addict, you will always be an addict. It's just a matter of whether you're active in your addiction or not. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a line that I teach uh, smokers, not one puff, not one cigarette, not ever for the rest of my life, because it's easy. An, an addict, if you let them have a puff, they'll want a cigarette. And if you let them have a cigarette, they'll want a pack. An alcoholic, once they quit, all it takes is one sip, one drink, and they're back to drinking. So right. Before, so there is no solution for that, is there? There's a solution as to whether you're active or not. Yeah, but... The, it, it, it's, and the addiction it, it, wears off. The addiction gets weaker over time, but it's still there. Yeah, that's what I'm, I'm thinking. Yeah. It, it's always there. The tendency is always there. Mm-hmm. Okay. But it diminishes and diminishes over time. It gets weaker and weaker and weaker. Okay. So you basically have to force yourself not to do something until it becomes weaker. Well, I suppose you could, I would never describe it as force because us human beings don't like force. I mean, if I, if you tell me not to look over there, I'm looking, you know, if you tell me not to do something, I'm probably going to do it. So, you know, one of the therapies I use with addicts is in hypnosis. I take them forward. I talk to them about there's a low road and a high road and the low road is continue doing what you've been doing with your addiction. And the high road is being uh, free of the substance. And the low road, I take them a year into their future and let them see. I don't describe it, not really. I mean, I may say, look at the lines on your face or look at how much money it's cost you. Then I take them five years into the future. And I take them 10 years into the future, which I've I've had some people not be able to see themselves at 10 years because they imagine they'll already be dead. And then we come back to the present day with this crossroads, so to speak. And then I take them a year down the road being out of their addiction, five years down the road. 10 years down the road of being free, of having a more normal life, of being an inspiration to other people and such. And for many people, that's extraordinarily insightful. And I don't create it. I create the framework for them to imagine. Mm -hmm. And it can be life-changing for people. Because most people who are active in an addiction can't see past the next hour, the next fix, the next day. They they really can't see six months or a year down the road. They, They don't allow themselves to see it. So why do we form addictions? Why do they happen? To run away from ourselves. That's simple. To feel different. To to be to feel different. To act different. To get away from ourselves. Because we there's something about us we don't like. So we do something to try to feel different. Basically, it comes down to the fact that we need to accept ourselves. Uh, to get rid of the addictions. Yeah, but it, that's simple statement, very difficult to do. Yeah. That, yeah. that acceptance takes working through a lot of stuff and sometimes painstaking steps. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the affirmations I talked about earlier, you know, simple two or three statements written that are positive, that a person speaks aloud three times a day, three times minimum. Now, that sounds simple, but do you know that maybe two in 10 people will stay with it for 30 days? Mm-hmm. They're so used to feeling bad. It's their normal state. At least they don't like it, but it's at least what they know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, positive change can create a bit of unbalance. I mean, sometimes people start truly making positive changes in their life and um, 
you know, they change jobs, they, they get divorced, they, they start to realize the conditions of their life is part of the problem mm -hmm. that they've allowed themselves to sink into. So, you know, we, you know, the only person who likes change is a wet baby. So, you know, any of us adults, we have to accept that this is going to be difficult. And if you really want your life to get better, you have to be willing to change whatever's necessary. Why are people in denial of their faults or addictions? It's as unique as the people. Yeah, who knows? Um, everybody is, you know, I use this sometimes, you know, I can look at you and say this with truthfulness. There never has been and there never will be again in the history of the world a person who's exactly like you. The exact combination of all that you are has never lived and will never live again after you, which is what begins to make you very unique and very important to this world. Now we need to begin to work on getting the things out of your way that are holding you back from the full potential that you see yourself having. Okay. <laughs> And I'm guessing uh, hypnotherapy can fix all of that. <laughs> well, it, you know, hypnotherapy can help the person address it. You know, I have people who come for three sessions and they're done. I have several clients that I see most of them about once a month of their volition. They, you know, I've got one big executive here in town that of an energy company and he uh, has lots of stress and anxiety. He comes on a Tuesday morning uh, every four weeks and he calls it getting his brain scrubbed. He says, once I get it released and I kind of deal with what's going on recently, then I'm ready to go do it for another month. So I get people who are, who are regular uh, monthly, quarterly, twice a year. Mm -hmm. who come back to get some more of the, the dust off of. Okay. I have um, several questions that um, basically require a short answer. Okay. So let's, I, I'm, let's I'm consider try, I'll try it. I'll be short. It's not, you're talking to a man who talks for a living. So that's what I do every day. So I'll, I'll try to be, Give short answer to short question. Yeah, let's uh, let's have a let's have a game. <laughs> okay. Um, who is your greatest teacher? My grandfather. Why? Because of what he made of, him, of himself. I saw what willpower could do. My grandfather couldn't read and write, but yet he built a farm of twenty four hundred acres and sawmills and chicken houses and beef cattle and could sit down with math and figure anything, but he could only sign his name. I saw what a person can do if they're determined. He wasn't a perfect man, but I've never seen anyone up close do what he did. Mm -hmm. So him, he was my example. Okay. Uh, what do you want to achieve with your practice? The meaning of my life is to help you find meaning in yours. That's a quote from Viktor Frankl. Um, it's the end of man's search for meaning. Um, that's it. Uh, my age, I'm, you know, supposedly, supposedly retired. I'm a little more than two years away from 70. Um, at this point in my life, it's not about consuming and taking up space. It's not about getting my name up in lights. It's about, well, it, you come back to the, you know, I talked about the, the stages of, of development. I mean, the last stage, If for 65-plusers, which I am, is uh, integrity or despair. It's finding the final meaning of your life, and I'm in that phase. This is the time where I look back on all that I've done, 
mm-hmm. all that I've you know been a part of, my mistakes, my accomplishments, and by doing this, feel good about my life. Feel that I have I've spent at least a good bit of it worthwhile. Certainly here in the latter stages of it. Okay. That's that's good to hear. How can we become better humans collectively? Well, I always come back to you start by believing at least half of what you think is somewhere between an error, false, and wrong. Okay, that's that's the beginning. That begins to make us open-minded and more malleable and able to see, have insights into other people. I mean, our own mind is our blinder. We have far, far too many absolutes in our mind that actually hold us back. Mm-hmm. Your answer is to change uh, something about our minds or behavior. Is that well, that? I'll give you, look, I'll give you something really simple. So many people live their life that they haven't taken five seconds to stare at a beautiful blue sky in years, but it's there every day. They don't see it. The only place your life exists is in the present moments where you're breathing. There's no life in the past and there's no life in the future yet. When you become aware, when you begin to know that you're breathing, that you can see what's around you, when you talk to someone, you hear them instead of trying to decide what you're going to say next. That's awareness, being present in your own life. Mm-hmm. That, that's a game changer. It was for me personally. What was your most intense emotion and how did it change you? Wow. <laughs> you don't have to answer if you don't want no, to. No, I, I not feeling good enough, not feeling worthy. And how did you change that? I don't think I have completely. Um I think it's one of the reasons I keep trying. I started I, I adopted lots of little things in my life. We'll go back to that slight course change we talked about earlier. When someone usually, when they ask me, how are you today? Mm-hmm. I don't say fine or good because, you know, people don't even hear that. It's so rude. My common line is every day is a good day. Some are just better than others. Now, my subconscious has heard that now for 25 years. And my subconscious believes it is an absolute fact. When I started it, did I? No, I didn't. I would say it and go, man, you're stupid. You think that's going to change how you see the world? But over time, it did. That and related thinking began to change how I see things. If someone presses me and says, um, well, don't you ever have a bad day? And I say, no, I don't. I refuse. Sometimes I'll just say, I'm way too old to have bad days. I don't have enough of them left. I have difficult days. You know, dear friend dies. That's a difficult day. But I'm still very much alive. I'm still very much. I'm not going, oh, God, this thing called life. I hate this. I hate this. It's what happens. I mean, the best life anyone has ever had is a fair measure of contentment and happiness with heartache, disappointment, and tragedy mixed in. Okay? That's the starting line. you got to accept that. So when things don't go your way, don't lay down on the floor and crawl under the desk. Have your bad day and then dust yourself off and pick yourself up the next day and get on with it. Put a smile on your face. You know, there's in recovery work, there's something called fake it till you make it. If you want to feel better, then start to pretend you do, and you will. I think you need to accept certain things to feel like you you pretend for a reason. It, mm-hmm. I don't think it uh, works just uh, if you say, I'm going to pretend and do it. 
Oh, I agree with you. You have to let go of, remember I said earlier, we're, we're dragging things behind us like, you know, barrels of sorrow, buckets of uh, discontent, disappointments. You have to let those go. Mm-hmm. Because what I talk about with the positive affirmations is moving forward. Mm-hmm. As long as you don't resolve the things in the past, your ability to move forward is greatly limited. So why is it so difficult um, to get rid of the past? I mean, it's how like, we define ourselves. It, we define it, it, ourselves. Well, in my case, like there were things that uh, were quite easier to get rid of. Um, but there are a few other things that seem to be impossible to get rid of, even despite the fact that uh, I've been trying like for many years. It took a long time. I mean, I, part of my stuff took 25 years to get rid of. I say get under control to where it's not a factor. Yeah. I ref- used to refer to um, my monsters. They were the things I felt about myself that held me back. Mm-hmm. And they're not taller than me anymore. They're like ankle biters. They're, they nip at me sometimes, but I can kick them away most of the time because mm-hmm. I have consistently stayed after it. My, mm-hmm. They still get loose sometimes. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I've worked mm-hmm. at this a long time, but I'm far from you know having achieved what I wanted for myself. Mm-hmm. Well, that makes more sense. At least it sounds more tr- truthful mm-hmm. because if you get rid of everything, even the deepest pain. Uh, you can't, you can't, you, you yeah. can get rid of the part that's holding you back. I mean, the, the life, the sum total of all the things that have happened to you and all the decisions you've made make you who you are today. Mm-hmm. How much each one of those pieces amplifies and plays in your life is your choice. Mm-hmm. But I think um, everything that happens in in life, yeah, it makes me who I am today, and I can use it for good. Well, most some of the you know the greatest artists were were tortured mm-hmm. souls, mm-hmm. you know, writers, um, you know, poets. The some of the most creative people have felt some of the deepest pain, and what seems like the you know the, the detriment to them is actually part of their asset as long as they don't allow it to consume. Mm-hmm. So is it just the fact that artists are more sensitive people in comparison to others, or it's the events that happen that? uh... My my experience is trying to put artists into one particular category is more sensitive is probably would be one of the biggest mistakes. I think artists I've known are as, as, you know, as, as varied as possible. Everyone has a different story. It may look in the end similar. Mm-hmm. But they all have a different story how they got there. Okay. You know, I, I used to, I had a photography studio and showings and stuff when I was younger. And I remember reading something that Edward Weston wrote. He was a black and white photographer of the 20s, 30s, and 40s. And he, one of the things he said was, quit trying to figure it all out. Just go copy everybody. Just go copy my stuff, copy everybody's stuff. And by copying, you'll learn and find your own style. Mm-hmm. And he said, he, he was a great believer. He said, don't go to school. They'll just make you like all the rest of them. Go copy the people that you admire. And in all that, you'll develop a style that doesn't look like any of them. And so that's what I did with photography. I never took a class. Mm-hmm. Okay. Next question. <laughs> okay. Uh, what's your definition of genius? 
Oh, I don't, I have no idea. I don't know. I'm not so sure. I, I, I can recognize genius, but I don't know what it is. How, so, can, how can you recognize that? It's a way it's people who can see the world. And yet their interpretation is different than most everyone else's. And that's why Einstein said imagination is more important than education. Mm-hmm. I mean, by the way, he wasn't very well educated. If you go back and look at his, you know, <laughs> how many classes he actually went to. Um, I don't know. It's a, it's ability to see and see different than most people see. But isn't that uh, the definition of any artist? Like <laughs> you see um, the uniqueness in every artist. Yeah, but there are people in business who do the same thing. I mean, yeah, what I just spoke of is, is not, I mean, that sort of artistry exists in all parts of life. There are doctors who mm-hmm. can look at the same thing and see it differently. Um, that's genius. That was the question. I mean, it's the ability to see the same old thing and mm-hmm. to see it differently, interpret it differently, and then react differently than the vast majority of people. Okay. What's your language of intuition? Well, um, done a, quite a bit of study of, you know, the theories of left brain, right brain. And most of us lean a little to one side or the other. You know, the thing about the two halves of the brain, they're not, we can be either. I mean, we're not exclusively left or right brain. I'm one of those people that's right in the middle, which means I have this constant pull between the left side and the right side, the one side to be creative and the other side to have all the facts and have all the corners nice and square. So that for me is sometimes maddening. I've often thought people who were more on the creative side were more creative than me because I don't have that. um, I don't have the part of me that wants everything to match and everything to add up. They, I I have that to deal with that they don't. Hmm. So I, I admire some of the free spirited people who can follow their whims to create and be. Okay. What's the best advice you were given? Probably the one the most is uh, a well-implemented bad decision is almost always better than no decision. A bad decision can be fixed. No decision cannot. And why is it better? I mean, you you can, can fix a- it. You can make a mistake. You know, if you, if even business or if I was, you know, making photographs or whatever, if it does, if it's a bust, it doesn't work out. Okay, I've learned something from that. I can fix that and move on. But if I sit paralyzed and can't move, I'm going nowhere. Because most of our life, our life experiences, our mistakes teach us the most. Yeah, but a lot of people don't like making mistakes and they try to avoid doing anything because of the fear of making mistakes. I could not live that life and I pity those who do. Mm-hmm. Why, why do you think people have high expectations? Do you have an answer for that? Well, the first question I would ask them is, are your expect- expectations yours are the ones your parents put on you or the person you live with or some your children put on you? Is it your employer? I mean, first off, I would ask, okay, let's figure out which one of these expectations are actually yours mm-hmm. and which one got dumped on you. So you think most of, the, of those expectations were coming from the family? 
No, I think it's a combination of all sorts, friends, family, okay. employers. I mean, we, we become kind of this mosaic of uh, expectations created actually through other people mm-hmm. that we end up adopting for ourselves. So what's the best way of um, coming back to your true self? Like uh, all of it, if we, lo- if we look at life, it's like we absorb everything and we become something else. Mm-hmm. And uh, what's the best way of getting rid of all of that crap? <laughs> Pray for old age. <laughs> and just because you're old doesn't automatically mean you're going to get it. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. this is this is oversimplification. But, I mean, I'm getting old myself. But I see people who are 20 years my senior. And this is, a, and I'm sure where you live, you see this. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is an oversimplification. But they come in two varieties. You know, there's the variety that, you know, their health's maybe not great. They don't get around really well, but they're quick to smile and quick to strike up a conversation, seem like they're genuinely content with things. And it has little to do with, you know, whether they live in a tiny little apartment or live in some mansion. And then there are the other people. They're just pissed off all the time. You can just look at them and tell they're angry. They're, they think they're, they didn't live their own life. They're not happy about it at all. So ultimately we end up, you know, it's described as either, you know, despair or we accept our life, you know, that's actually, we accept the integrity of our own life. So that's why I say age. And I'd like to think I've lived all these years that, you know, this thing called life was something I was supposed to get better at. Mm-hmm. Not just show up every day, apply myself to being more, being better, being more capable, learning. Mm-hmm. I think the, you know, getting, I, there's a phrase and I can't think of it, but you know, your body aging, you can't control, but your mind aging, you have tons of control over that. Mm-hmm. You know, people who stop having new experiences and I, I don't mean, you know, mountain climbing. I just mean people who stop having new experiences and trying new things and learning, they get old. I don't care if they're 30 years old, they get old. Tell me why it's so difficult to change someone else's uh, opinion. The only thing we can change is to change ourselves. But right. why is it so difficult to change someone else's point of view? Waste of time. Yeah, yeah, I know. But it's why? an absolute waste of time. And I, it's another phrase I use a lot in my practice. And I teach people, what other people think of me is none of my business. It's their business, not mine. And who knows what they went through in life to cause them to see me and to see the world like that. I'm not going to spend my time worrying about what someone else thinks of me. There's a freedom in that. And being worried about what other people think. Um, I don't care if you're just an average person or you're an artist. Being consumed with what other people think is a prison. Mm-hmm. It'll affect your work. You'll start, start working for them. That's how I feel. I... Uh spend half of my life working for someone else. And then I decided to quit. (laughs) You understand. You understand. And and age has taught you well. That's what I said earlier about, you know, we're supposed to get wiser as we get older for paying attention. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about or say, or. Well, I would just, I would say something about creativity because I know that people who might see this might um, Mm -hmm. be interested in that. Um, Different people's 
most creative phase comes at different ages. There's a lot of studies and research that'll say, okay, our most prolific is 20s and 30s. There are others that'll say it's north of 50. Robert Frost wrote almost half his poems when he was over 55 years old. So your most creative period is as varied as the person is. Was it? Grandma Moses didn't start painting until she was 75. So it varies by person. Um, and a good way of helping yourself with creativity is, this will sound trite, but it works. Um, sit down in a chair somewhere, or lay down, close your eyes, and let your imagination go. Imagine you've turned your imagination volume up a couple of notches. Mm-hmm. And begin in your mind to create a creative space. It can be just a room. Just shape it in, in imagine it to be exactly like it would be most perfect for you. And spend time, you know, putting the things in it, the colors and such that you want. And over time, continue to go back and work on that room. Um, it will it will begin to unlock your creativity because the subconscious is what you're creating that with. You essentially are dreaming it in a roundabout way. Mm-hmm. And the more time you spend there, the more you'll unlock your creativity. And if you get blocked and you've created that space over time for yourself, just go to that creative room, or that creative house or shack or whatever it is that you've built that you think would be the most ideal place for you to create. It doesn't even have to be real world. I and mean, that's a great thing about the imagination. You can create it any way you want. As children, we have like uh, a very wild imagination, but as we grow up, we kind of lose it. No, we don't lose it. We, we're, we're pushed to conform. <clears throat> to conform to society's standards? Yeah, yeah, and we push okay. ourselves. We push ourselves to conform. You know, I read once, and I, I, there's a lot of theories, but that we're probably the most creative when we're around four to five years old. And I happen to subscribe to that. And that is we, we haven't learned all the rules yet, but our body works. We can touch things. We can try things. We can move things. And over time, we're taught, well, that's childish. That's a silly waste of time. Mm-hmm. Or we want to fit in. We, we want to be with the in-group. We lose it. Yeah, I read in that same article said by the time we're 18 years old, the average person has 3% of their original creativity. Why, why do you think we uh, uh, feel the pressure to conform uh, to conform to standards in the family in the in in society why do you think it happens we we see benefit in it if we didn't see benefit we wouldn't do it yeah but what's the benefit just to be accepted you mean <laughs> well we're an inter- interdependent species you know most people could not you know, live in the center of 50 acres by themselves and never see anyone without losing their mind. We're an interdependent species and we're always trying to at least in some way fit in. Okay. My belief, my opinion. Yeah, that's good to know. We can't help it. I think it's wired into our brains that we we feel uh, stressed out when we don't conform. Well, that's, you, you said the same thing I did. I used the word interdependent, which means interdependent means we're connected. We're yeah. interdependent on everyone else. You know, we're interdependent today. Society is, creates interdependence. You know, we don't all live on our own farm and grow all our own food anymore. We're, you know, all you need is a, a storm or 
something like when COVID started to realize what an interdependent species we are and how much we depend on so many other people for our life. Mm-hmm. And it's not just in the products we buy, but in emotionally. And uh, we want to be appreciated and, and um, thought well of. We just do. Well, why do you think it's so, it's so difficult for us to deal with our emotions? Is it because we are not taught about emotional intelligence in school or there is something else to it? I don't, it's, it's our, it's, I can only speak for Western civilization, which I'm a part of. Um, Part of it is our civilization. It's, we always talk about trying to be independent and to find our true and real self, but yet we live in a society that wants us to do anything but that. So there's this constant conflict. Mm-hmm. Now we're getting into, you know, philosophy and society and this is my opinion. So that's okay. opinion, opinions are like noses. We all got one and they're all different. Mm-hmm. Let's say it this way. Like I, uh, I always struggled with my, with the idea, like why I'm here, like what my life's purpose is. It, it always uh, bugged me in a way. What do you think about that? Like, uh, how do we define purpose in life? I call it living the life well that's in front of you. You'll find your purpose. Stop thinking about it. It's there. You will innately go toward it if you'll allow yourself. But if you're always thrashing around in the water trying to find it, you won't ever find the current. Mm-hmm. If you can just let go of that sort of thinking, because the life we have is right in front of us. There are people coming in and out of our life. There's opportunity. There is inspiration waiting to happen. Mm-hmm. If we'll just stop reaching to the side and behind us and trying to grab things that aren't really meant to be part of our life. Mm-hmm. Just live the life well that's in front of you. You know, you never know when that person who starts to strike up a conversation with you in the slow grocery store line maybe may say something that will stay with you for the rest of your life. We have this tendency to walk around so very guarded. And you're back to what I said about looking up, um, you know, at the, the blue sky. I would dare to say that maybe one in 10 adults has taken more than five seconds to stare at a beautiful blue sky or to stare at clouds like they did when they were five, lay on the ground and watch them change shape. That's when we found, we thought life was a marvel. And so if we just start living this life called this marvel cause life, we're far better off trying to figure it out. Oh my goodness. It's impossible. We can't figure it out. We can't sort out what our mission was. We, we, there's no way. Mm-hmm. Chances are we'll fool ourselves if we even try. Just live what's in front of you. You'll cast yourself in the right direction because I think we're innately drawn to what we should do and we're repelled by what we shouldn't. If emotionally we're in touch with ourselves, but if we're thinking, no, we'll miss it. We'll walk right by what we should have done and we'll go do what we shouldn't have done because we talked ourselves into it in our mind. So you are saying that it's important to live in the present, in the present moment. All important. It doesn't mean you forget about the past. It doesn't mean you stop planning for the future, but you don't live in either place. Mm -hmm. You can't. There's no life there. The past is dead and there's no life in the future yet. Mm -hmm. Your life exists in the moments where you're drawing breath. That's it. Nowhere else. Right now, my life is right here, the two Mm -hmm. of us. Why is it so difficult uh, to get rid uh, of the past? Habits. 
So it all comes down to habits. Neural pathways. Your life is your creation. You know, no matter what your mom and dad did, no matter what your life experience is, your thinking created your life. Mm-hmm. Plain and simple, the majority of it. I mean, there's circumstances beyond people's control and stuff, but the majority of our life is, is our own creation. And when a person begins to realize it's their own creation, they have this aha moment to say, oh, my goodness, I actually control a lot of this, don't I? I can if I work at it. Yes, mm-hmm. you can. Yes, you can. I'm assuming you, you changed a lot in your life by coming back to your, to your true purpose, helping well, people. My true purpose and, you know, I did have a difficult childhood. You know, I originally started, I thought I'll read books. I'm an avid reader anyway. I'll just read books and fix myself. All I became was a well-educated and uh, dysfunctional who could talk about it, but I still wasn't any better. Mm-hmm. I had to work with other people. I, um, you know, I had a, uh, a psychologist I worked with for many, many years. Interesting how that turned around is I actually, once I became a therapist, worked in her practice for a while when I was between offices, um, you know, accepted as a peer by someone who probably helped save my life. Um, what happened go, in your childhood? Um, uh, I was born to an 18 and 19 year old mm-hmm. um, kids having kids. Um, I don't think either one of them wanted to be married. They weren't particularly faithful. My dad got another woman pregnant when I was seven. Um, he left. So I'm twice until I was almost out of high school and my mother went crazy. She's dating and running around, ended up kind of mostly raised by my grandparents. And then at 10, she married the stepfather from hell who saw my brother and I as just excess baggage that came with my mother. And we were treated as such. So, you know, we, we were watered, fed, and housed almost like cattle, but we weren't taught. Mm-hmm. So my brother and I grew up, we've talked a lot about this. We had to figure it out ourselves. Because mm-hmm. we entered adult, our adult life kind of like um, pinballs in a pinball machine, just bouncing off the bumpers, or in our case, bouncing off what happened in our life. And both of us in time um, decided to do it with intention that we could live a different life. We could, not a different life, not a better life, um, that we could think differently and feel differently. It takes a lot of time. But if a person wants to change their life, Anyone can do it. You just have to be determined. Mm-hmm. You have to realize there is no greater purpose for us than living a better life or living a good life. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that uh, despite the fact that you had a difficult childhood, you were still very successful in the entertainment industry. That's not unusual. It's trying, I was trying to prove I was more than I thought I was. Many people who succeed in big ways are actually lack confidence or insecure inside because they're trying to prove them wrong. Yeah. And I was, that was it. I mean, I, I was trying to prove and something. When did you realize that? Forties. Uh, forties. Forties is when you start to wake up, you know, the, the, somewhere in the forties, I think I was 45, 46. You realize, okay, I can see it in my face. Life is changing. I'm not going to live forever and forever. And then I just decided I'm not going to live like this the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. And I started to read and seek things out. I mean, I was a practicing Buddhist for four years. That was just forcing it down, but at least it began to get things under control. I just, I started to try things mm-hmm. to make my life better. I was started thinking uh, about my life in my early thirties 
And uh, I remember um, that my my son uh, said something to me that uh, didn't make any sense. And I began to think why I was doing things that, that mm. I was doing things that didn't represent me. And then I actually began to think, uh, you know, about patterns of behavior and how uh, they were enforced, you know, on me, although they were not mine. Right. Well, you were, you were blessed and lucky that you, know, mm-hmm. you, had, yeah. you had a little boy around who could say that. Mm-hmm. Most of us, we have to get to middle age. We have to get to the 40s and 50s if we ever wake up. Mm-hmm. And I would say at least half people never do. They just. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add before we quit? Well, this was just, this was when I was doing some reading back a while, even since, I mean, you're an artist and you have friends who are artists. It's important to note, to go back and when you look at history is when a person's most prolific period was. It can be any time. Mm-hmm. It can be any time. It can be youth. It can be old age. And then there's two, there are kind of two kinds of people. Um, the ones that are, approach things more conceptually. And then you've got the experimenters. And if you think about artists, you'll, you'll see both. You know, the, They all study concept and technique. And then you've got the experimenters. And if you begin to, the, the, you know, Van, Van Gogh, people like that, they were experimenters. They're just trying stuff. Mm-hmm. And then someone like Rembrandt was trying to develop technique. Mm-hmm. So they're two very different kinds of artists, at least in my estimations. I work with a fair number of them too. More musicians than, you know, people who put brush and pen to paper. But So who was the person who stood out for you and why? About what? Oh, well, uh, you said you worked with artists. So... I can't tell you. Uh, well, I mean, not not the name, but like um, the personality. Music artist, two albums under their belt, filled with songs that took them a whole lifetime to create. Mm-hmm. Now they they have to produce another album in twelve months for their record company. Okay. They were stymied. They didn't know what to do. They, I haven't had a, you know saying I have nothing's happened to me in the last year. My life is great. You know, I've got more money than I ever thought I would have. I. Uh, what do I do? What do I, and um, I said, talk to people. If they're not yours, then write about what other people have experienced. Start asking people about their life story. And that's what he did. Mm-hmm. So he wrote songs about what had happened to other people. Interesting. Wow. <laughs> okay. Well, because he only had one lifetime. He had... You know, most of the stuff that he'd been storing up since he was a kid to write songs about, those were gone in the first two albums, you know, the first Hmm. 20 songs. Usually artists paint a part of them in every picture or, you know, the same as with the creation of music. I love how Dali did that, you know. In his case, it was literal. There was a little bit of him in everyone. Mm Mm-hmm. All right. Well, it was nice talking to you, and I yeah. and I appreciate your time and oh, you're welcome. The, the opportunity. Yeah. Well, thank thank you so much. It's a pleasure. This is fun. Thank you.
Feel free to share this video if you find this interview helpful for you and your friends.